Welcome to the podcast of Follow Baptist Church. Our vision and mission is to follow Jesus in our community for His glory. We hope and pray that you are blessed, challenged and inspired by this message. For more information on Follow Church, you can visit our website at www.followchurch.com.au. Good morning, church. It's great to begin a, another series of one of Heroes for God. And we're reading this morning from Nehemiah chapter 1 in the NIV version. Um, it should be on the screen for you to follow along, or if you don't have a Bible and you need one and you want to continue reading it through the week, then there's one at the end of most of the rows. So we begin in verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hekeliah. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Han and I, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who have survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem has broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commands, Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear. The prayer of your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees and laws you gave to your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, and even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizons, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success this day by granting him favour in the presence of this man. I was cupbearer to the king. Thank you, Ray. Good morning, everyone. It's exciting to start a new series, isn't it? No, okay, it's not. Uh, I think it's exciting to start a new series. Today we are starting a new series. Good, that's much better, uh, through the book of Nehemiah. And I must admit, as I reread it through, through it recently, uh, God really stirred in my heart an excitement. Um, the series is called Arise and Build, and it stirred my heart for a couple of reasons. Uh, number one, there's so much in this letter that's profoundly effective uh, and speaking directly into our lives, and so much we can learn from Nehemiah as a person, so much we can learn from God and who he is, and so I'm encouraged about that. But I'm also encouraged because I think this book um, has a lot to tell about 
um, us and where we're at as a church. And that's why we've called the series Arise and Build, because we are a church that has uh, arisen as you, as to speak in this area. And uh, sometime in our future, we're going to build in this area as well. And so there's so much in this book that's going to challenge us over the next few weeks. And so before we start, I just want to pray that God would stir us and challenge us throughout this series uh, to be the people of God that would be willing to lay everything down in our lives and be willing to live for his glory. And so let's bow our heads and we're going to pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's such a great encouragement to us that it convicts and challenges and changes us from the inside out. Lord, I thank you for people like Nehemiah who are a great example for us. But most of all, we thank you for this story about you that you are an incredible God. Lord, we thank you for what you've done in our lives personally, that you've literally saved us from the darkness. You pursued us by your Holy Spirit. You opened our eyes and we have now been dragged from the darkness into the light, not by anything we've done, but simply by your grace and your power in our lives and in our hearts. Lord, we are so grateful for that. But Lord, we understand that we're distracted at times. We want to be people who live for you, but we get distracted. And so Lord, help us not to be distracted. Lord, I pray that we wouldn't be people who are apathetic. Lord, I pray that you would help us not to be people who are fearful. But Lord, help us to be people of faith, of passion, and of focus, to live for your glory in our community and beyond. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the video a moment ago was very helpful, and it's very helpful to get us into the history of the book of Nehemiah. I think when you read a narrative, it's really important to try and kind of step into the story. It's easy to read over history and sort of see it as dry history or just a story in the Bible, but this is actual human history. And I think when we're talking about human history, it's good to step into that story to try and imagine what's going on in the context when this was written, but also what's going on in the heart of the main character, Nehemiah. And so today I want to start by sort of laying a foundation of the history of this book that will hopefully um, lay the platform for us over the next few weeks. And so in the year 605 BC, Babylon, led by King Nebuchadnezzar, defeated Pharaoh and in 589 BC invaded Judah. The siege of the city was brutal and the entire city was destroyed. The rule um, of the Babylonians lasted 66 years And in 586 BC, the Babylonians broke through the walls of Jerusalem. They conquered the city and they scattered God's people throughout all parts of the kingdom. Their rule went for 66 years, but in the year 539 BC, the Persians finally defeated the Babylonians. And a year later, in 538 BC, Cyrus, the ruler of the Persian Empire, issued a decree that all the refugees could return to their homelands where they were free to rebuild their temple and to rebuild their cities. The Persian approach to ruling was very different to that of the Babylonians who had previously ruled. The Babylonians defeated a people and then they scattered their captives right throughout the kingdom. And they did that for a couple of reasons, mainly to dilute their influence and to break down their strength. But the Persian Empire did the exact opposite. When they defeated a land, they actually sent all the people back to their lands where they could rebuild their temple and cities. So The only thing they asked for in return was that the people that they sent back to their homelands would loyally pray uh, for the well-being of the empire. And so in 537, a remnant of about 50,000 Jews returned to Jerusalem. And 22 years later, by 515 BC, they'd completed the rebuilding of the temple. And this should have been an incredible moment. 
that God had rescued them and through a pagan ruler had sent them back to their land where they could rebuild their temple to worship God. But unfortunately, even though they'd returned to the land, they hadn't returned to God with all their hearts. It seems that their only focus was the building of a building, not the glory of God. Now, in the previous book, uh, Ezra, who was probably the author of both Ezra and Nehemiah, he tells of his return in the year 458 BC, which is 73 years after the first exiles returned. And so Ezra goes back 73 years later, and his job is to rebuild the spiritual lives of the people. So they've rebuilt their temple, and that's all good, but they haven't rebuilt their spiritual life. And so Ezra goes, and through his life and example and ministry, um, there's great spiritual reform and change. But it wasn't sort of long-lasting. And about 13 years later, um, Nehemiah followed Ezra, and he headed back to Jerusalem as well in 445 B.C., And he headed back to Jerusalem with a passion for two main things. The first passion is that the city of God, Jerusalem, would come alive and would be a place that would bring his praise. But the second thing he was passionate about was to rebuild the wall around the city. The wall was still in ruins from 140 years earlier when the Babylonians had broken through it. And the wall was significant. It sounds like a bit of a strange thing. Why would you want to go and rebuild a wall? But a wall was very significant because a wall would surround the city. And a city without a wall and without a gate where the elders would sit was susceptible to attack from enemies. And so Nehemiah saw the building of this wall as a very important thing to do. And in his mind, it would have been like putting a stake in the ground to demonstrate to the rest of the world that God's people are called to be here. And we're serious about seeing this city be a dwelling place for God's name. And so we're going to build this wall as a sign to say that we're here to stay. And so Nehemiah was determined. He was determined to see the building project that started with the temple now be completed with the wall around the city. And so the book of Nehemiah, which we'll explore in the next few weeks, tells the story of how all this came about under the leadership of Ezra and also this man, Nehemiah. And it's easy to look at Nehemiah and go, well, he's a great leader, and he is, and we're going to look at him today. But when I read through the story, the thing that stood out to me over and above the leadership of Nehemiah was the sovereignty of God. And it's so clear that God is working in all of this story. In verse 8, Nehemiah says to God, Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, that even if you're exiled to the farthest horizon on earth, I will gather my people from there and I'll bring them to a place that I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. And so this is what God has said hundreds of years earlier. And now we see God's sovereignty in this situation because God had used a pagan nation like the Babylonians as his hand of judgment. And because of their disobedience, Babylon had scattered God's people right throughout the earth. But now, once again in his sovereignty, he uses another pagan empire, the Persian Empire, as his hand of blessing. And through the Persians, he actually brings them back to a place he had chosen as a dwelling place for his name. Not only that, but he'd chosen two men, Ezra and Nehemiah, as the people to lead this process. Now, we're looking at Nehemiah, and we don't know much about Nehemiah. What we do know from this story is that Nehemiah was a great leader. He was a man with a very strong faith. He was a man who had a trust in God. But prior to this part in the Bible, we don't know anything about this man. We don't know where he grew up. 
We don't know what his family was like. We don't know what shaped his faith in God. But what we do know from verse 11 in the first chapter is that he was cupbearer to the king. Now, cupbearer is really just a fancy name for wine taster. And that sounds like a pretty good gig, doesn't it? You know, the Greek, the, the king, he doesn't get the rubbish, cheap wine in the bags. He gets the really good choice wine. The best wine would be used at the royal functions for the king. And I know that would sound appealing to many because in Australia, there's a culture of people sort of driving around Australia and touring wineries. And they go and they sample wine and they spend a lot of money doing so. And so for many people, this would sound appealing. I remember when I first started dating Kim, a number of years ago now, a lifetime ago really, um, started dating Kim and I remember we had a lot of family do's where my father-in-law Mark, who's here today, and also Uncle Kev, uh, Kim's got an Uncle Kev, I've got an Uncle Kev, does everyone have an Uncle Kev? I don't know, you'll have the equivalent, you know, the kind of daggy, loud uncle in the family and I remember that, that Mark, maybe that's you, I don't know, um, I remember Mark and Uncle Kev would sit around and they would sample wine. And they would have all these different wines that they'd bought and they'd, they'd put it in a cup and they'd kind of swivel it. Have you seen people swivel their wine? Does that stir it or something? I don't really know. Uh, I'm not a wine sort of extraordinaire. But people, they would swivel their wine and they would sit around and they would talk about each wine. They'd have a sip and they'd go, oh, that one, oh. Uh, I didn't talk like that, but I'm just kind of adding it for emphasis. Uh, that one's got that fruity taste to it. Oh, you've got to try this one, Mark. Oh, this one's good. It's got a woody taste to it. And, and I'm thinking, are they talking about the wine or the timber deck? Uh, what, who in their right mind would want their wine to be woody? But anyway, it had a woody wine, and, and I kind of expect to look in the cup and see some wood chips floating around or something. Um, but they got really excited about their wine. And occasionally they would give me some to sample and they give me a couple of glasses and they say you've got to try these wines and so they give me the first one and and I taste it I give it a little sip and they say so what's that like and I'd say oh, it tastes like wine <laughs> and they go oh okay we'll, we'll try this one then and I'd sip that one and, and they go what does that one taste like and I'd say well, that tastes like wine as well and they would say but but can't you taste the difference and I think I'm being punked. Like, I'm looking for the cameras thinking, they're taking the mickey out of me. They're having a joke. That's the same bottle, right? And they're like, you've got to be kidding. And they kind of scoffed at that. They were almost offended at that. Now, this one's like a, a cheap wine we got at the bottle shop today. And, and this one's been aging for 50 years. And I thought, well, save yourself 50 years and a lot of money and just get the cheap one because they taste exactly the same to me. Exactly the same. But they love their wine. And some people... Maybe you're one of them as well, love their wine. And you might read this and think, well, this job sounds like a dream job. I'll be the wine taster, I'll put my hand up and I'll take that job. But it's not quite as glamorous as you think. You see, the cupbearer didn't just sample wine for the next royal function. He's there to make sure that the wine isn't poisoned. And so a king could give him wine to sample and he might go, oh, that one tastes very fruity, that's nice. Well, what about this one? Oh, that one's got that woody taste about it. Oh, good, I'm looking for a woody wine at the next function. But then he might hand him another one and he might say, well, what does that taste like? And if he says, well, that one tastes a bit, yeah. He would know that there's probably not a wine for the next function. And he would know that he's probably going to have to put a job online and get himself a new cupbearer because that guy has just carked it on his behalf. And so the cupbearer was someone who was willing to lay his life down for the king if need be. However, despite the inconvenient occupational hazards of the job, the job did have some perks other than the fine choice wine. The cupbearer was someone who had great access to the king. 
And therefore, it was a position of great influence. The cupbearer was the bearer of the king's signet ring on many occasions. And the ring was the one that you would step down on, on pieces of paper to sort of confirm financial transactions. And one commentator I read this week said that the cupbearer is what we would call the chief financial officer of the kingdom. And so Nehemiah was a man with great power and great influence and great access to the king. And we see that God in his sovereignty has placed him there. And next week in chapter 2, as David preaches, we'll see that this great favor that he had with the king is something in God's sovereignty that he used to resource the vision that he placed on Nehemiah's heart. And so what I want you to see as we go through this story over the next few weeks is that God's handprint is all over this story. In verse 2 of chapter 1, Nehemiah's brother, Hanani, comes to visit from the homeland and he asks his brother how things are going with the exiles in Jerusalem. And the answer his brother gives him breaks his heart. In verse 3, they said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the province and are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. Verse 4, when I heard these things, I sat down and I wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. As I read that, this week, it really hit my heart and it challenged me. And it challenged me with a question that kept going through my head. And the question was this, how much do I care about my community? And I'll ask you the same question today. How much do you care about our community? How deeply do we feel the pain of those suffering all around us? How do we respond to the spiritual brokenness in people's hearts? How do we cope with the reality that people are not living for God and that the vast majority of those in our suburbs are heading to an eternity separated from God because they haven't received his love and they haven't accepted what he did for their sins on the cross. Do we even think about it? How often do we pray for our street, for our neighbours, for our friends, for our suburbs, for our city? Are we so distracted that we just don't have time? Are we so apathetic that we... Just go through the motions. They're kind of challenging questions for all of us. But I wonder, does it cause us to despair? Nehemiah sat down and he wept over his city and he mourned for days. But what I love about him is that he didn't stop there. His despair actually drove him to prayer. If we want our region to come to know Jesus, if we want people to be impacted with the gospel... Let me tell you, church, it's going to start with prayer. This morning we had three people in our prayer meeting. I'd love to see that room full on a Sunday morning of people that are passionate about God, passionate to see Him on it, passionate to see this community reached. And so are we people who are passionate of prayer? Nehemiah was a man of prayer. And in verse 3, his heart is broken at his brother's account of what's happening in his hometown, but his despair drives him to prayer. And can I suggest it's a good place for us to start as well? I've made it a habit in my life as much as I can to just walk around our estate and to just pray as I walk the dog over the houses that I walk past. And I do it because I know that statistics would tell me that many of those houses behind closed doors, when the lights go out, there are things that are happening in those houses that are destructive. But more than that, I know that most of the houses I walk past are full of people separated from God's love, separated from him because of their sin. People that 
have never come to know Jesus Christ. And for me, it's heartbreaking because it's a, spiritually, it's a life or death situation for so many people. And I don't know about you, but sometimes it can feel overwhelming. And you think, well, what, what can my prayer do? Praying as I walk the dog, does it make a difference? When one person prays, does it, does it change what happens in people's families and lives? Does it really have an impact on people? Well, if you've ever felt like that today, I, I hope that this story is an encouragement for you. Because what we see in this story is disaster in Jerusalem and one man praying in Susa, 1,365 k's away. He weeps, he fasts, and he prays for his city. And as we'll see in this book, that one heartfelt, God-inspired prayer starts a chain of events that sees a city restored and a God-given vision come to pass. Prayer is so incredibly powerful. And God has given us the ability and the privilege, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, to be able to come to him anytime, to come into his presence with, with confidence and boldness, knowing that we pray to a God who is an almighty, supernatural God who can do all things according to his will. He can heal. He can restore. He can see people saved. He can provide in our lives in ways beyond our imagination. He can bring relationships back together. He's a God that can do all things. And I love that Nehemiah starts his prayer by acknowledging who this God is in verse 5. He says, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and the awesome God. What a great way to start prayer. What a way to build faith, to remind ourselves that we're praying to a great and awesome God. He's the God of heaven. He's the God who can do all things. Nehemiah knows that they're in a giant predicament, that things in the city are a huge mess. And spiritually in our community, things aren't much different. They're very much the same. And yet the first thing he does is he lifts his eyes above the circumstance, above the sadness, above the brokenness, and he looks to a God who is great and awesome. He's the God of heaven. He's the same God who says, my arm's not too short. He's the same God who says, I own the cattle on a thousand hills. He's the same God who says, I can do all things. He's the same God who is loving and gracious and compassionate and kind and faithful. He is the almighty God. And what we know It's because of who he is, there is no circumstance in our lives. No circumstance that you're going through now, no circumstance that you'll go through in your life in the future, that God does not have the capacity and the ability to change. And that should fuel our our prayers with incredible faith that we're praying to a great and awesome God. But there's something important also to note in Nehemiah's prayer, and that is that it's a prayer that is also full of repentance. And I think it's important to note that because I believe that repentance is a biblical key to effective prayer. If we don't uh, become people who are repentant, if we're people who don't forgive, it can be something that actually hinders our prayers. The psalmist in Psalm 66 says, I cried out to God with my mouth. His praise was on my tongue. But if I had cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. But God has surely listened. And has heard my prayer. Praise be to God who has not rejected my prayer or withheld his love for me. And Nehemiah's prayer is very similar to the one that we read in the Psalms. He starts by saying, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keeps his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes be open 
to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. And then he goes into confession, repentance. He says, I confess the sins we Israelites have committed, including myself and my father's family. We've committed these against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed your commands, decrees, and laws that you gave your servant Moses. Have you ever had someone in your life that apologizes, but they say these words, they say, I'm sorry, but. Do you know that when you the but butts up against the sorry, the sorry might as well not be there? Because they're basically saying, I'm sorry, but you're an idiot. I'm sorry, but you made me do it. I'm sorry, but it's not my fault. I'm sorry, but I'm not really sorry at all. And it's a, it's a horrible thing to do. I'm sorry, but. I don't think that God wants us to be sorry, but people. You know, this week I was listening to the radio and I heard a bit of a funny spot on the radio and I was sort of in awe of the newsreader who managed not to laugh uh, throughout this uh, little thing on the, on the radio because he was talking about an epidemic in our society. It was an epidemic that he called mooning. I don't know if you've ever heard of mooning and um, what it means, but mooning is basically pulling your pants down and burying your backside in public. And this guy was talking about it being a serious problem, and if, if you're someone who moons, you could do jail time. And so no more mooning this week for anyone here at church. But he was talking about mooning, and it reminded me of my childhood um, for a number of different <laughs> number of different reasons, personally. And also I had a friend. And he was a bit of a wild guy in our youth group, and we used to go on excursions on the youth group bus. And we'd go bowling and we'd go out to junk food crawls and we'd do all sorts of stuff. And I remember this wild friend of mine used to think it would be funny to press his cheeks up against the window on the bus and pull his pants down for the people driving past. And it's not a great thing to do when the bus says Mentone Baptist Church on the side of it. Uh, welcome to the community. Uh, I'm going to bear my butt at you. Uh, and, and he thought it was really funny. Um, and if you would ask him, are you sorry? He would say, no, I'm not sorry. Uh, I think it's funny. It's an act of defiance that I would do that. I don't care what my leaders say. I don't care what the community thinks. I've got a right to moon and I'm going to moon. And so that's what he would do. But I was thinking about that this week, not too much. (laughs) And I thought, you know what, when we say sorry but, it's like the word equivalent of mooning. It's like putting the butt in people's face. I'm sorry but. And it stinks. I just took that analogy too far, didn't I? (laughs) It's a word equivalent of mooning and it's definitely not repentance. God doesn't want us to be sorry but people. He wants us to be people of humility and people of repentance. And in this story, we come to a guy who's taking responsibility for the situation. He's stepping up to the plate. He doesn't shift blame. He doesn't see everyone else's faults and conveniently skip over his own. He comes before God with a repentant, humble heart. He says, it's me. It's not just Israel, it's me. It's my family. It's my father's household. We've sinned. We've acted wickedly towards you. And it's a great way to pray, to acknowledge that we fall short on so many occasions. And it's a way of prayer that that I believe Jesus endorses in the Lord's Prayer. It's very similar to Nehemiah's prayer. He says, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So he starts the same way, doesn't he? Nehemiah says, great and awesome God, God of heaven. Jesus says, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. They're lifting up God. They're reminding themselves who God the Father is and what he's like. Then Jesus goes on. He says, give us today our daily bread. And so he prays for our everyday needs. 
And it's so funny how we often skip the first step, isn't it? We come to prayer. God, I need your help for the exam tomorrow. God, I need your help for a breakthrough in my life. God, I need your help with my finances. God, I need your help with this, 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 and this. But we skip the first part to lift God up and say, God, you're awesome. You're the God that we pray to. You're the almighty God, the great and awesome God. Hallowed be your name. But then after that, Jesus goes straight to repentance. He says, forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. Nehemiah and Jesus model for us God-centered prayer that starts by acknowledging who he is. He's our father. He's the great and awesome God whose name is to be lifted high. But it's also a humble, repentant prayer. So as I thought about this week, I thought for myself and for us, what are the things that maybe hinder our prayers? What are the things that God wants us to bring before him with humble and repentant hearts? Because repentance is one of the keys to effective, life-changing prayer. Nehemiah was a man of prayer, but he was also a man of vision. I love vision. Bill Hybels' definition of vision is still my favorite definition of vision. He says, it's a picture of the future that produces passion. Vision is a picture of the future that produces passion. Nehemiah was a man with this kind of vision. We read verse 8 before, where he says that God said that if you're unfaithful, I'll scatter you. But if you're faithful, I'll bring you back even from the furthest parts on earth. And I'll bring you to a place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. You see, people in Nehemiah's day, they saw the broken walls. His brother, that's one of the first things he mentioned. The walls are broken down. But Nehemiah saw beyond the physical problems. He saw beyond the broken down walls and he saw to the bigger issue. And the bigger issue was the broken spiritual lives of God's people. And that need was even greater than the walls. God's glory was not being displayed by his people or in the local community as it should. But in the midst of a terrible situation where to many all seemed lost, Nehemiah dared to look through the consequences of their sin, through the the, the situation they found themselves in, and he looked through that and he dared to dream of something better if they would put their faith and trust in God. Nehemiah had a vision that produced passion in his heart and his vision was for Jerusalem to be a city that was a dwelling place for God's name. In other words, it would be a city where God is honoured. A place where people live for him. A city that the rest of the world would look at and they would see a glimpse of who God is. And they would see it through the way they love one another, through the way they served, and through their obedience to live for God. For Nehemiah, it produced so much passion that he was willing to lay down the rest of his life and say, I want to live for that. I want to see this city be what God's calling it to be. He could have easily said, well, I'm in a position of power. I'm the cupbearer. I'm probably looked after well. I've got access to the king. I have power and influence. But he said, I'm willing to sacrifice it all to see Jerusalem be a dwelling place for God. Just as he'd been willing to lay his life down for an earthly king as cupbearer, he now demonstrates with his life that he's even more readily willing to lay his life down for the king of kings as the leader of God's people. Nehemiah was a man of vision. As I was challenged by that this week, I wondered to myself, what is it that stirs our hearts? What's our vision? I wonder what our preferred vision is for for our street, for our neighborhood, for our suburbs, for our lives. Is our preferred vision to retire with lots of money in the bank? Is it to build a great house? Is it to drive a luxury car? Is it to be popular or successful? Or is our vision so much greater than just ourselves? 
Is it a vision where we lift our eyes and go, God, I want to live for you. And I'm willing to make that number one priority. You know, if you were to ask people what the book of Nehemiah is all about, most people would respond by saying, oh, it's about that dude that, that rebuilt the walls. But what I want you to see today more than anything else is that building the wall wasn't the vision. The vision wasn't ever bricks and mortar. The vision was God's glory. And the wall was only ever something that helped facilitate that vision. I think people like Nehemiah and so many other characters in the Bible uh, put there by God to show us that God wants his people to be people of vision. You know, Jesus went to the cross and he died for you and I to forgive our sins and to see us saved and to give us hope. And when Jesus was there on the cross dying in our place, I believe he, he, he saw something greater for his people. And I don't think he went to all that effort to die on a cross so that we would be half-hearted, apathetic um, people who go through the motions. I think he, he died for a people of God that would be redeemed, that would, would live for him, that would take up his challenge to deny ourselves, pick up our cross and follow him. That's what Jesus is calling us to be. Those kind of radical, countercultural, general, uh, general, sorry, generous, sacrificial people. He wants us to be people of vision, people who take the gifts and abilities he's given us the time and the resource and the finances and, and use what we've got because the truth is we only get one shot at this life. And people that we know, our, our friends and family who don't know God, they only get one shot at this life as well. And so I believe that God wants us to take everything he's given us and wring our lives out for the glory of God. I wonder what stirs our hearts. Right now our elders have started a process of seeking God for the vision of our church in the immediate future the intermediate future and the long-term future. Once we've discerned that, we're going to put some down on paper and seek input from our deacons and, and then we hope to present it to our members at our November meeting. And we believe that stage one of a church building will be part of our intermediate future in the next 18 to 36 months. As a leadership team, we want to be completely transparent about that because we just want to be transparent about everything that we do. But we also want to be transparent about it because we know that sometimes building a building actually causes angst for people. From the start of Follow, our leadership team has had a deep desire to become a church that lifts up the name of Jesus high over this region and beyond. And I honestly believe that with all of our hearts, that Follow Baptist Church is going to be a very influential church in the southeast of Melbourne in the years to come. Southeast of Melbourne and beyond as we share the gospel. And as we see people's lives saved and transformed by the grace of Jesus Christ. Part of the strategy has always been from day one to build a place of worship in our region, which would be used to engage our local community. We want our, our church building to, a place, to be a place where people will come to, that they want to be at. But we also see it as a place that will be a headquarter for discipleship and for mission. And in all honesty, ye of little faith, I didn't see that happening for many years to come. But most of you would know through the generosity of God and through the generosity of some donors, we've had three acres of land donated in officer to us late last year. And also by God's grace, our church has grown quicker than I ever imagined it would. You may notice that most Sunday mornings, we're around about 80% full. And our core team, our leadership team, have done a lot of exploration and, and look at other venues in this region and, and we've come up with nothing. No other venues that will accommodate us, no other venues that are available. And we don't want to go to two services at the moment. We're a young church 
We don't want to stretch our music teams and our kids teams and our preaching teams. And, and we don't want to lose the intimacy that we believe that God's building in our church. Fellowship's one of the core parts of our DNA. And so we believe that now's the time to start thinking and praying about building a building. And I know that the vast majority of our congregation are really excited about this part of the future. I know the setup team and the pack-up team. I know the kids' ministry team. I know our ministry leaders. They want this building built last week. And I don't blame them. It's a lot of work to set up and pack up something like this every week. And, and we don't know how long this venue will be available to us. And so we believe that establishing a place in officer for us will not just be a vision that we have. It's not our vision. Our vision is Jesus. But it will be something that enables the vision we have to come to pass for many years to come. But there are some people who've been through a building process in other churches and it hasn't been handled well. And it makes you nervous and anxious, and I understand that. Money's not been used wisely. There's been high pressure placed on people. Loans have been taken out that are beyond the ability to service. Ministry has kind of gone on pause, and the vision has all been about a building. And in all honesty, even amongst our eldership, as we talk about it, some of us have experienced that as well. And we're determined to do this process really well. There's no doubt it won't be easy. There's no doubt it's difficult finding a balance between stepping out in faith and being realistic. We could say, oh, we just want to do something realistic, but we want to be people who go beyond that and say, you know what, we believe God's a great and awesome God. And as we stretch out, God can provide and he can meet needs and he can do miraculous things and we've already seen it in so many ways and it builds incredible faith in our hearts. As I read through Nehemiah, I was encouraged with so many similarities in this story to where we find ourselves as a church. Nehemiah saw great opportunity for God's glory in his city. We plan to follow Baptist Church because God gave us a heart for the officer region and beyond, and we saw great gospel opportunity in this community. Nehemiah's vision wasn't a wall. It was a city that honored God, and his ultimate goal was God's glory. We too have a vision. Our vision is not a building. Our vision is Jesus, and our mission is to follow Jesus in our community for his glory. In order to see Nehemiah's vision come to pass, he built a wall as a stake in the ground to show that God's people were there to stay. And in a similar way, our leadership team believes that God is calling us to build a building in our community as a place of worship and a center of discipleship and mission, but also to communicate to our community that we're here to stay, that we believe that God's called us here, that God has put his hand upon us, and that we are serious about seeing God's love transform our community. I don't know about you, but I believe with all my heart that God has called us to this region. And I can't wait one day down the track, when I stand before Jesus, I can't wait that when many of us do the same thing, when many people have been saved, many people have been discipled, when we've planted more churches, when we've seen this region transformed by God's, God, God's glory in so many ways, I can't wait to stand before God and hear that sentence, well done, good and faithful servants. Now come and enjoy what I've prepared for you. I think that's a vision that is worth living for. I think it's a vision that's worth dying for. It's certainly a vision worth laying our lives down for. Nehemiah was a man of prayer. Nehemiah was a man of vision. And finally, in closing, he was a man of faith. His faith did not come from his own ability. His faith came from God. Verse 10, they are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Let Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this, your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. 
Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. And in chapter 2, he declares with great faith, the God of heaven will give us success. This story outlines Nehemiah's return to Jerusalem and highlights that for the wall to be built and for the city to come alive to God, it was going to take prayer and vision. It was going to take hard work and determination. It was going to take strength in the face of opposition, as we'll see later in the series. It was going to require unity in God's people. It was going to take God's supernatural provision. It was going to take incredible generosity from God's people. And it was going to take faith in a God who is great and awesome. God's handprint is all over this story of Nehemiah. And if you've been at follow from day one, it's hard to deny that his handprint's all over us as well. I'm so excited about the future. And I hope that we will always be a people of prayer. That we'll always be a people of vision. And that we'll always be a people of faith, willing to step out, to stretch and to trust in our God for his glory.